Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of Humans Aren't Robots. I'm your host Sam Davies and we are broadcasting live today from a teepee at the wonderful South Start Conference in Adelaide. We were lucky enough to head down to South Start and over two fantastic days we recorded around about uh, 12 conversations with some of the incredible keynote speakers that were sharing some of their insights about business, startup world, leadership, creativity, tech. It was a really eclectic uh, panel of speakers over a few days here in Adelaide. And wow, uh, I can't wait to share all these conversations with you. We're going to jump in with a fantastic one. Uh, I literally sat down cross-legged on the floor in the teepee with Dr. Gemma Green from Power Ledger. If you are in and around the blockchain world in Australia, or worldwide for that matter, you definitely would have heard of Power Ledger. Power Ledger is a really innovative and interesting use case for the technology. Um, I'll let Gemma uh, jump in and explain what they do for themselves. I think they're, they're quite well known for conceptualizing the idea of being able to trade energy peer-to-peer. It was an absolute pleasure to be involved in Southside again this year. I can't stress how fantastic the two days were. We learned so much and yeah, really looking forward to sharing these conversations with you. So without further ado, let's jump in with Dr. Gemma Green, live from South Start. Gemma, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And welcome to South Start. Oh, thank you. It's great to be in South Australia. Um, were you at South Start last year or is this the first time? My first time. Yeah, nice. Just flown in from Perth this morning. Yes. Um, which is a uh, busy morning for you then. Nice. So um, we were just uh, touching base on uh, why you're here. So you've just uh, finished giving your talk. So tell me a bit more about Power Ledger. Sure. Uh, well, we're a young company. We're a tech company. We're three and a half years old and we're based in Perth. We've got 25 staff mm. and we use the blockchain to do three things. To facilitate the trading of electricity peer-to-peer. Uh, transacting of environmental commodities, so things like renewable energy certificates, carbon credits, and uh, asset ownership. Um, energy trading is the area we're most well-known for with uh, peer-to-peer trading of electricity, but we've also got REC trading projects in the US and Japan, and we're soon to launch our asset ownership product. So what, so what's the, uh, the REC trading? So... Uh, like renewable energy certificates, um, one certificate measures one megawatt hour of energy. You might have like a company in Singapore that wants to buy renewable energy, but there's hardly any there because it's a lot of high rises. It's an island. And so they buy a wreck from like a Malaysian country, uh, Malaysian, from a Malaysian uh, energy producer. And then they are able to claim that they have purchased 100% renewable energy. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And but- then what it does for the Malaysians is that it gives them an economic incentive to install renewables because someone will buy the wreck. Yeah. And that's that's massive, isn't it? Actually giving that incentive. Um, interesting. Where, yeah. where did so before Power Ledger, what's your what's your background? Uh, my background's in investment banking. Okay. I lived and worked in London for eleven years. Nice. And I moved back to Australia seven years ago this month. Mm. So Me too. Same. Not, I was there for six years, but it's seven years ago that I came back as ah, well. What date in November? Um, I can't remember exactly. We did, we did about, uh, my wife's uh, American, so we did um, summer in the States and we came back in, it was either late October, early November. So yeah, similar time. Cool. But, mm. Yeah. So I kind of moved back to Perth and thought it was going to be the sleepy backwaters and that my exciting career days were over, but the opposite has been true. 
been really yeah blessed with enormous opportunities and we're just really trying to make the most of them and uh, see what we can do in leading the democratization of energy movement and um, driving efficiencies in electricity markets and um, making electricity more affordable and clean. So um, blockchains obviously you know, a big part of what you guys do. I, I, I'm not sort of I'm not very big in the in the crypto world. I, I, I understand the technology as sort of a, you know, a layman's level. Um, my personal belief is that the technology is talked about too much. So if you think about like a, how that computer works, like nobody really cares what's happening no, inside. They Intel just, inside. Yeah, there you go. Sure. So so yeah. What, what's a, what's a what's a processor? I mean, it's a small silicon chip. Other than that, I don't know what it is. So but there seems to be this, I don't know, a skepticism or need to understand at a deeper level what the technology is. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think it, it gained so much notoriety probably in the past two years. And, you know, there were lots of scams that people were just putting the word blockchain in front of their name to raise money and, uh, you know, lots of really experimental ideas and some of which have just turned to dust already. And it's, a you know, somewhat analogous to the tech stock boom that occurred where, you know, some companies like, you know, Google and Facebook and Amazon you know, were born in that era and obviously massive um, enterprise today, but many companies, you know, didn't go anywhere. And I think that a similar phenomenon happened in blockchain. And uh, there's, as a result of that, been a scepticism around why do you actually need a blockchain? And I actually think that healthy scepticism is quite, you know, helpful. Like while I was waiting to do the podcast, there's a, a guy outside and um, he saw my name badge and said, Ledger, and what do you do? And I said, and he was like, you know, why do you need a blockchain? And so I proceeded to explain why you need a blockchain in the three product areas. And for energy trading, if you're just doing peer-to-peer with one retailer, you don't need a blockchain. But what you can have is if you've got many retailers, the blockchain can facilitate cross-retailer trading and settlement real-time, whereas in the current electricity market, it's like three, three months to settle transactions. And using the blockchain, you can have customers with batteries selling to another retailer um, uh, like a real-time agile trading and settlement market. So that's the energy trading opportunity with the blockchain. And then with rec trading, typically rec trades happen via brokers and uh, legal documents and then uh, payments via traditional means and then transfer of recs from one owner to the other. And that whole process is very costly and time-consuming. Whereas using the blockchain, again, you can agree the trade, settle the payment and transfer the rec as one and the same entry on the ledger. As a smart contract, essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. And then the final one around asset ownership, you can fractionalize very small assets at low cost and tokenize the asset and make assets liquid that would otherwise be illiquid, like an electric vehicle charging station. You could own $50 of one and that can become tradable and it makes the asset more attractive investment and brings more capital to fund these kinds of projects and provides an alternative um, ownership syndication model to investment banking products for smaller assets. Um, And so I think, you know, we have to, and we should have to explain why would you want to use blockchain and when do you not need one? Because I wouldn't call myself like a a blockchain acolyte. Like I don't think it's like the, you know, solve all for everything, but there are certain places, uh, you know, we have to, it can add value. But I think that, you know, it should never be seen as this kind of, you know, you want to democratise everything. Yeah, and so I've been, uh, I suppose, relatively sceptical. And I keep, every time I, so, so you guys are a good example, but every time I see, like, a use case that just makes sense, right? So another one was, uh, you know, Lee and Callum Butler um, from, from Intimate. But, I mean, 
what I was interested in what she was talking about is a, the democratization of personal data, right? Mm. So if we can, in the future, you know, know where our data is and then give access to a body, whoever that might be, certain facets of that data, even when they require it, um, as opposed to it just sort of being universal. Yeah, that's right. So I think that has that has that has huge use cases, and then and then energy. So I mean, it's coming back to sort of the home level. So in Australia, you know, a lot of us have solar power. Um, more of us probably should, but there, you know, there's huge government, well, not huge, but government incentives to get you know the, these panels and arrows. You know, in the in the late 90s and the 2000s. Um, all of which seems fairly inefficient, and we have a sort of tariff or a feedback scheme. Um, if you want to talk about maybe some of the inefficiencies within that, that those schemes. Yeah, so you've got the inefficiencies in the physical market and then the physical system, and then you've got inefficiencies in the way the markets operate. And feed-in tariffs were a good you know, mechanism um, to stimulate um, the deployment of renewables, but they're not that sophisticated. Like, it's a fixed price, and as batteries come online... The value of electricity is different at different times of the day. And so people dispatching into the peak could attract an enhanced return. And we've just launched in South Australia our virtual power plant, which does that. And so with Power Club, the retailer we've partnered with, they give households the spot price in the wholesale market, which got to $14 a kilowatt hour, $14.50. And South Australia is the most volatile market because of the variable generation from wind and, and solar. And so the prices are going to go to those higher levels and even negative levels more often, but it provides the market opportunity for batteries to exist, uh, to be deployed if the market mechanism is there to underpin them. And what I mean by that is it used to be we'd build the physical energy system, like big power stations and transmission lines and bring electricity to people's homes. And that was the physical system. And then they put the market on top. But what the blockchain provides is a market mechanism that puts a price signal that will change the physical system. So, for example, if you can get $14.50 a kilowatt hour, you'll put in a battery and you might put in a 15 kilowatt hour battery rather than just a small battery to self-supply. And so the market mechanism encourages you to stay connected to the grid uh, and monetize the investment and maximize the investment. Yeah, sure. So this creates essentially more kind of a peer-to-peer network where you're, you're maximizing what you have as essentially becoming... A micro um, supplier of energy. Correct. Yes, I, I call it citizen utilities. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And so, what? Like right now on the ground, like can, can I do this? Can I? Can I? Can I get in and, and start? Yeah, in South Australia, anyone could sign up with Power Club, mm. and uh, if they've got solar panels, they're able to trade. Uh, and then, if they want to install a battery, then they're able to. Um, use that battery to um, sell electricity to Power Club in the peak and Power Club will buy electricity from its customers in the peak instead of buying it in the wholesale market. Okay. Mm. And so what's the process look like that as, as a consumer? Like how, how do I go about facilitating that? And, and then uh, I suppose in terms of that return, so is that in credits or is it in dollars? Or how does that work? Yeah, so um, longer term, the way the system will, will work is that as your battery dispatches electricity, you will receive a credit in your account that you can use to offset your electricity bill or otherwise um, credit it into your bank account. Um, and so that's basically the, the concept. But on the platform, you were saying how, you know, you don't really know what's in the laptop. And I think that customers don't really need to know. The blockchain got hyped, so people are asking questions about it. And obviously, that's good that they're interested. But ultimately, the user experience is with electricity, people want to set and forget. Uh, and so we have um, what we call a dual token system, 
we have sparks and power. And sparks are like phone minutes for electricity. So one spark is one cent. And so you buy a dollar's worth of sparks, you get 100 sparks. It doesn't change. It's a stable coin or what we call a cryptographic token. And so you just have your web, your, you know, you log in, you've got your balance in your account and you can turn that back into dollars into your bank account. So the user experience is you can set the platform up to do how you ha- trade how you want to and then it does the rest automatically. And I think that's really the level of engagement 95% of the population want to have. Yeah, that's right. There'll be a few people that want to gamify it, but by and large, we just want to know I'm getting the best deal and this platform's going to help me get that. And how does that integrate with like your existing energy provider so at the moment? Well, um, you would need to sign up with one of the retailers that is offering this. So, so far we've announced one, Power Club, and they're a small retailer, but they're actually one retailer of the year because they're really around empowering um, their, the citizens. So they're really pro the democratisation of power and they see that change that's happening in energy markets from centralised to distributed, a hybrid system, and they recognise that they, they could actually buy electricity in the spot market or they can empower their customers to invest in things and, and purchase it from them. Sure, so they're just dipping back in and out. Yeah, exactly. And so and a, a number of what I would call challenger brand retailers that have like really big growth strat- strategies and plans that are going to do that. And so we've signed up, I think, two more retailers that we'll be re- bringing online next year. And we're really excited to see what the response will be. Um, so it's not just about I'm going to put a system in to supply myself, but it's actually you know, an investment that I can um, you know, sell to others in the market and get a return. What about other markets? Like where, where has been the best uptake globally? Uh, so just a snapshot of where, where we've got other projects. So we've got a one megawatt project in Bangkok trading commercial six commercial buildings. And we've got another project in Thailand that's under construction now, which is 12 megawatts in Chiang Mai. In Japan, we've got a partnership with Kepco, the largest privately owned utility, and we supported the creation of a virtual power plant in Osaka. And then we're just about to start doing a rec trading project with them. We've got another partnership in Japan with a smaller entity called uh, Sharing Energy. Um, They want to be an aggregator and retailer. In Malaysia, we've got a partnership with the government to do peer-to-peer trading between residential and commercial customers because there's a price difference, so there's an arbitrage opportunity there. Uh, In America, we have a partnership with a NASDAQ-listed company. We've got six gigawatts of renewables. Uh, They're called Clearway, and they um, are a big trader in RECs. So although nationally in the US there's not a REC system, there's 34 states that operate their own RECs program. So they actually set minimum targets for energy companies to buy renewables. And if they don't have their own, um, they can purchase a REC. Um, and so that creates a market for them and pr- very high prices. In fact, about $3 billion of RECs are issued in the US every year. And it's the largest REC market in the world. And um, that's what we call a comp- client's REC market. So there's also voluntary markets in there where companies just voluntarily deciding to buy renewable energy rather than being required to by law. And the price of those RECs is smaller. But um, we'll be launching that in January with Clearway and we've got five megawatts of um, assets that we'll be trading. And we've also got strong interest from other um, market participants to join that. And then we've got, uh, with American PowerNet, an energy trading project there. And then in Perth, um, peer-to-peer trading across the grid trial and some apartments with solar and batteries. And then we've announced the project in South Australia. That's That's kind of snapshot. A lot happening. (laughs) What's your sort of vision of the next sort of five years? And not just with Powerledger, but I suppose renewables in general and sort of what the trajectory is like at the moment. Yeah, so there's like so much money being spent in renewables every year globally, $350 billion every year. And the price of solar is coming down. 
the price of batteries are coming down. Um, it's reaching parity with grid prices. But the, it, there's no energy revolution. We've got broken systems, you know, and it's manifesting in places like South Australia first. So we really need, you know, at the moment, you know, like you said, you had feed-in tariffs, which are pretty basic. And the market's about as geared up for, you know, to to empower citizens is, as Coles is to buy your homegrown tomatoes. And, yeah, it's a good analogy. Yeah. And so we're really looking at how do we manage that transition that's happening without as much destruction of value for incumbent players and to really underpin us an energy system that is stable uh, and low cost and clean. Because yeah. you keep hearing that when people start talking about uh, so the, the batteries, whatever that the, the Elon Musk had to do with here in South Australia, you, you look at the, the polarised opinions on some of those things and stability keeps coming back into into those uh, those conversations. And I, I don't know that much about it, but it feels like that, that seems to keep coming up, especially somewhere like South Australia. Oh, I mean, you cannot, like, politically, it's unacceptable not to have a stable grid. Yeah. It's absolutely unacceptable. And so that is, like, a number one priority. And, you know, in a way, because of the instability that's occurred in South Australia, that's why, you know, the, the government's, um, got the battery subsidy program to put 40,000 batteries into the scheme. And so it's actually that instability is triggering innovation that's solving it. And so I think you're going to see ground zero here mm. around what the energy system of tomorrow will look like. So it's very exciting. I think South Australia is you know, leading the way in so many respects around AI and robotics and energy as well and blockchain. Yeah, so, there's a lot happening. Yeah. It's great coming down to something like Southstart and actually I think a lot of people and not just in South Australia, just in general, are unaware of you know some of the incredible things that are happening right on their doorstep. Um, and for whatever reason in Australia, we're not very good at uh, bigging ourselves up, so you don't hear about it that often, oh. unless you're in the particular niche, you know. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know Stephen, um, you know your premier is, has done an amazing job of really, you know, representing South Australia and the vision yeah. that he has for for the state. So I think you know. Because the confidence in the South Australian market is the highest out of all the states and territories okay. in uh, Australia. So I, I think that it's starting to do its work. Yeah. So, so you came out of investment banking. Like, was there a shift in terms of like, did you did you have a consciousness shift in terms of sort of renewables, or, or was it was it the what, what got you interested in it in the first place? Yeah. So, I first part of my banking career was mainstream finance. And then I did a leadership training course and as a part of that I had to do a project and I looked around our office and thought, oh, there's no recycling. I'm going to introduce recycling to JP Morgan's London offices, which was uh, about six buildings and 9,000 staff. So I went to the chief operating officer and said, could we put recycling bins in? And he said, sure. And so three months later we had these large recycling bins dotted around the office and I thought, woohoo, until I saw lots of people putting their recycling into their trash can at their desk and I was like, this is not right. And so I went back to him and said, can we remove all the individual bins and put a rubbish bin next to the recycling bin and that'll improve the rates of recycling? And he said, okay. And then three months later, we went binless and I became the most hated person in the office overnight. People started a Facebook page called Bring the Bins Back and I was blamed for rats in the office and pe people were complaining that, you know, they were so busy making money for the bank, they didn't have time to walk to the bins. And so we were like, oh, we'll put the bins on the way to the loo. And they were like, no, 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 I'm so busy making money for the bank, I don't have time to go to the toilet. And, it, you know, it was just kind of like the definition of unsustainability, I guess. But you... It kind of got me really interested and I thought, oh, this is an area I want to work in. And then I went on and did a postgraduate diploma in sustainable business and a master's uh, in sustainability leadership and 
Um, just at that time, the bank was setting up its environmental risk unit to look at its lending in developing countries. And I was chosen to help um, set up the team and worked there for about six years, finished my master's and then took a nine-month sabbatical and travelled around the world, did a bit of hiking and then got excited about building an eco-village in Perth and then was persuaded that I should do my PhD on that topic. And so I did my PhD in electricity market disruption and uh, I was trying to find software that could make um, apartment building that had solar and batteries trade electricity and I couldn't find anything that did that and then randomly I was introduced to these two blockchain guys and thought, oh, this is really interesting and we set up a business together and yeah, it was kind of like a sequence of events from like mainstream finance to sort of environmental risk and financing energy and then, um, yeah, doing my PhD and then setting up Power Ledger. It's a cool journey. It's kind of led you to a, a pretty interesting place. Yeah, the, it, the just e- kind of step by step. Yeah, the eco-village stuff is, is, is really interesting. I was actually having a conversation, um, a couple of my employees uh, work offshore. Raymond is in the Philippines, but he was over here on the weekend. Somehow we got onto the topic of talking about, there's some new developments near my house and we were talking about them and, and about solar and then about water. And I was telling him about the drought and um, the sort of crisis we have here in, in Australia with water. Um, he was talking about in the Philippines, right, I don't believe he has, they have a water crisis, but obviously water is expensive. So he was saying in his, in his, uh, in his house and in his in community, they, they try and reuse sort of you know, as much water as they possibly can. So any sort of wastewater, bathwater, dishwater goes in the garden. And, and we started talking about you know, why do new developments in Perth, you know, with a lot of them are in South Australia, not have these you know, huge grey water, water systems. I started looking into the, because um, I was like, yeah, like why, I, it costs me a shitload to water my garden every year. I, I, I like growing tomatoes and they're actually quite expensive if you start looking at the actual real cost of them. Why couldn't I have a grey water system? But then there seems to be quite a lot of, it's, it's difficult to implement it seems based off, you know, um, the actual technology that's there. So I think it's a bit like, you know, when you first go to the gym and you haven't been for a while and it's painful and suffering and then after you keep going, it's it easy. gets easier. And, like, there's not an established market for grey water systems and so it's more expensive. But, you know, if we kickstart that industry, I think the cost will come down and it will be seen as a very normal thing to do, mm. like breathing. So what else are around sort of that space do you see is in that same sort of vein that, that, that is uncommon now but that will become or that should become commonplace? Uh, well, I, this morning I was watching an interview between David Letterman and Bill Gates on in 1995 okay. and he was explaining, Gates was explaining to Letterman what the internet was. Yeah, oh wow. <laughs> and uh, it's you know, really funny to watch because he was saying, oh, you know, it's this place where you can post information and you could watch like a baseball game. And Letterman goes, yeah, but you could like watch a baseball game on the radio or the TV. And he said, yeah, but you could watch it anytime you want to. <laughs> and he was kind of unpacking like the features and the benefits of this new world. And they were kind of, you know, he was almost incredulous. He couldn't believe it. And I think that there's a bit of that with any sort of new technology innovation where that people can't quite imagine that it will be any different. Like even when... You know, we had the floppy disk and it was replaced by the hard disk. They were like, why would you want to put a more expensive disk in there when the floppy disk does a good job? But, of course, it stored more data and it was a more stable storage device. And so they ended up putting both of them in there in spite of the cost, uh, you know, of duplicate systems. And um, uh, when the 
motor vehicle was invented, it took 50 years for it to disrupt the horse and cart. And many people thought that it never would. And the same goes with the telephone. Um, there was like somebody very senior in the British government at the time that said, oh, you know, telephones will work very well in America, but in the UK, we're very happy with our messenger boys. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, and also wrong technology predictions from very well esteemed, you know, technologists, you know, getting things completely wrong. And so I just think that we've kind of got this sort of disbelief about anything being really any very different to how it is, even if we do have, you know, progressive aspirations. And I think a lot of the work we're doing at Powerledger is really kind of explaining that this is a thing and it could happen and actually it can solve problems, you know, depending on what the situation is. It's not like a universal thing, but that you've got to bring people along for the journey so they can start to imagine what it would be like. And unless you can imagine it, it's hard to step into that world. Yeah, and, and I suppose you, you need, there's always going to be the, sort of the neophiliacs or the forerunners that are out there, you know, adopting and, and jumping on early. Um, and you're right that some things, some things will work, some things won't. But um, yeah, it, it's really interesting. But I think around, yeah, around renewables, the, the recycling story at, um, at PJ, where was it? JP Morgan. JP Morgan is, I mean, that's just like a microcosm of society, isn't it? It's, uh, it is. We had yeah. the same thing in our office. Uh, Tess implemented that and, you know, she, she it was the bane of her existence for about six months because every time someone went up and put like, you know, a coffee cup in the recycling bin, she'd have to be like, "That's not recyclable." Yes. And, you know, education but that, program. But it is. I mean, it's it's hard to sort of um, wear away old sort of uh, you know mind states and you know, ways of thinking, and it does take time and energy. Yeah, I mean, changing behaviour is a really challenging thing. Even if you get someone to say, "Hey, take your watch off this arm and wear it on this arm," mm. they'll feel affronted when you make <laughs> them do that small change. And so, what I think technology can do is really automate a lot of these things. So you take the need to do things out, you know, and it just happens. And that I think is where you will have more step changes that can occur. But I think um, in a practical um, application of of what you know, energy here in South Australia is extremely expensive. We all see that we have an abundance of, of solar energy around. So I think for your, your common South Australian, it makes a lot of sense. And, and to, to think, well, one, if it's going to be cheaper, and then two, if, if sustainability is an outcome of that, then great. Um, but if, if economics is going to drive that, that, that's not a problem. Well, it used to be that they were almost mutually exclusive of each other, but I now think that, um, you know, that they are intimately linked. And the, and the battery technology, so that's obviously come a long way in the last last few years. Is that sort of on a pretty steep curve up in terms of sort of efficiency and price? Yeah, so the levelised cost of electricity for batteries is coming down faster than it was predicted. Okay. And uh, where you've got like a physical problem in the market, like in South Australia and in Victoria, you, they need the batteries in the system to keep the stability. And uh, so that subsidies make sense to drive that, to solve that particular problem. Mm. But within two years, the price of batteries will be like competitive with grid pricing and there won't need to be any subsidies. Sure. Yeah. So there are subsidies in South Australia at the moment? Yeah. So up to $6,000 per household um, for pensioners and for uh, non-pensioners up to $4,500 per household. Okay. Yeah, you, know, you get a lot of those calls from people sort of selling you selling you solar, and you you sort of not sure to make out if they're uh, legitimate or not. Yeah, well, I mean, you can buy a solar and battery system, but you know, if you uh, if you buy a system that can work for the virtual power plant, then you can actually optimize that investment, uh, you know, by selling electricity into the market. So, cool. if you're interested, I would encourage you to look at that. Yeah, so Power Club's the place to, to look at. Definitely, will do. Oh, um, I won't take up any more of your time. It's a pleasure to sit down and have a chat with you. Thanks for having me. If people want to find out more about Power Ledger, they can go to www.powerledger.io.
Beautiful. Yeah, re- really interesting stuff. So looking forward to seeing uh, the future growth. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Sam here again. Thanks so much, Dr. Gemma Green. That was a fascinating conversation. I'm personally really interested in this. Uh, I think given you know the nature of our of our country and climate and the cost of electricity here in South Australia, especially that these are some great use cases. So um, just to dive in again, so you can check out um, Power Club here in South Australia, powerclub.com.au. I've actually uh, taken some measures to, to, to look into that myself already. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be releasing more of these podcasts from South Star. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. And I hope it gives you a little bit of a taste for the, the quality of humans that are actually speaking uh, at this event. Um, next year is going to be bigger and better. So... We hope to see you all down there. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.